Dr. Oliver Sachs is a neurologist, <clears throat> and he, meets, he writes about meeting Virgil, who lost his eyesight in early childhood. And when Virgil was 50 years of age, he was able to undergo eye surgery, and his sight was re- restored. He could, he could <clears throat> start seeing movement and colors, but there was no real coherency in what he was seeing. It couldn't make sense of it. The, the, the objects didn't relate to each other. So he could see movement. He could identify things. But he still behaved, acted, did things like a blind person does. And they both came to, to, to the conclusion that there's a difference between having the physical capacity of sight and actually seeing And so Dr. Sachs writes, one must die as a blind person and be born again as a seeing person. That's what happened to us when we were born again by Jesus. When we we surrender ourselves to Jesus, nothing looks the same. Now, when we're new in Christ, we have the old behaviors. We we don't always act like born-again people, right? We still have the behaviors of the old person, and it takes a while before transformation happens. In fact, through the course of our lives, over and over again, God has to do this reshaping of our lives. And we have to to be meeting Jesus over and over and over again to become the people that he wants us to be. And this, this particular story, these stories we've been dealing with in Luke chapter 15 of uh, in, in Jesus' ministry is such a striking chapter for us. And uh, here we learn that he, he gives us eyes to see. That's what it happens when we're born again. He gives us eyes to see. Uh, and it happens when we are born again. And these eyes with which we see are, are well, like the Father's eyes. Even like the Father's eyes in the texts, the stories that Jesus is telling Now, we reviewed last week the prodigal son story, a very familiar story, probably the most familiar story in the world regarding Jesus, of all Jesus' teaching. And this prodigal son, of course, he goes to his dad, he says, I want my inheritance now. It was a shameful thing to demand of a father when the father is still living. It's as if he were saying, Father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want you. And so the son takes his inheritance, a third of what uh, the father would leave him, and he went to a far country, squandered in wild living, and when the famine came to that land, he still stayed away, till finally, the story that Jesus tells, the young brother came to his senses. He saw himself, and he said, I'll go, I'll go back home, and, and uh, I'll say to my father, just make me a slave, just make me like a, a hired servant of yours. And so we see this, this wonderful return of this, of this younger son. And the father sees him while he's a long way off. He races to him. That's the Greek word. He didn't just run to him. He raced to him. And he showers him with kisses. He embraces him. He says, bring a robe, bring shoes, bring a ring. We're going to have a party and we're going to celebrate. Now, if you're in Jesus' audience in the first century, you're listening to this story, you are not teary-eyed. You are aggravated. You are outraged. 
because such behavior is not tolerated in Middle Eastern society. You do this to your father, it's the worst thing you can do to your family, to your extended family, to the town you're from, and don't you dare think of coming back. If you did come back, the townspeople, the family, would do a kazaza. A kazaza is taking a jar of clay, breaking at the son's feet, and saying, and saying, there's a cry against you. You do not belong here anymore. That's what the son would have anticipated coming back. But instead, he comes home to the embrace of his father. The community would have had the eyes of a judge as they looked at this young man. Dirty, smelly, stinky, unshaven, unkempt, a derelict of a son. But the father had the eyes of a doctor, and he was so grateful that his son wanted to be well again. And so, yeah, the audience, I, I can guarantee you there is not a biblical scholar or historian that understands ancient history that would suggest teary-eyed people. No, they're outraged at the son, and they are stunned by the father. But that's not the end of the story. They're also puzzled. They are puzzled by what happens next. And so, we come to verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 2020 vision is tough to get to. And once you have it, it is certainly difficult to, main, to maintain in a spiritual sense. But when this, when this younger brother came to his senses, you know what it means? It means he finally saw himself with 2020 vision. He saw who he had become, who he really was in his core. He had never really seen himself well until now. So he came to his senses and made his way back. What do you see when you look at people? When you look at people, do you look at people through the eyes of a judge or the eyes of a doctor? Do you look at people, do you, do you feel for them? I tell you, ever since I've seen my son's mugshot in the Napa Star, I've never looked at a mugshot the same since. It changed everything about how I see people, even Bill Cosby this week. It changed how I saw him. Most of my life, I fear I've been like the great physician. I fear I have not been like the great physician. I've been a judge. In telling this additional part of the story of the elder brother, Jesus is issuing a warning 
If we fail to see ourselves truly before the Father, uh, we end up hiding in plain sight. Often Jesus would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But I would add that, add to that today and challenge us all. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Let him see ourselves first. So let's look at the characteristics of what we'll call the pouting son. After working all day in the fields, the older brother arrives at his house, only hear this karaoke music shaking the rafters, you know? And he can't, he can't, yeah, he doesn't he didn't know about a party going on. Now, this son wouldn't have been in the fields working. He, now, this father has an estate. You know, he has, he has plenty of servants and slaves. This son is probably a manager of people. He's used to being in a privileged position, being the son of this estate owner. So don't picture a guy who's out, you know, working the plow or the animals. This is a son who has a, has a privileged position where he is. And he, he can't imagine what's going on. And so he asks, he asks a servant, hey, what's going on? Well, there's a party. Your, your, your brothers come home. So this is, this, is, this is true about pouting sons. First of all, elder brothers have an angry spirit. That word anger in our text is orge in the Greek. It means he flew into a rage, a rage. He was grumbling and complaining, saying, you know, I've never left you. I've never even gotten a billy goat of a party. Anybody here, you know, uh, believe God should reward you based on how good you've been and how, how much you've obeyed because you've lived a good life? I love this passage because the father leaves the party. He comes out seeking this elder brother just like the shepherd left the 99 to go find the one. And the woman searched frantically for the coin earlier in Luke 15. And as the father looked a long way off, waiting and longing for the younger brother to come home. It's the same father who leaves the party looking for this elder son who he so wants to understand the, 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 the heart that he has for his family and for people and for his workers and, and, and every person he meets. But if you think God owes you a good life, you miss the heart of God. You stay irked. Why is that guy getting his prayer answered and I'm not getting my prayers answered? Well, why, do, why do I go from problem to problem in my life and those people never seem to suffer? You know, if you go around your, your life comparing, you'll always miss the goodness of God. So what happens to us. Asaph, the psalmist, had the same problem. In Psalm 73, he writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, God. And I look around at all these wicked people, and they're the ones getting ahead. It doesn't seem like I'm getting ahead. You know, you, could, you can go to work. And you say, how come that dirty, rotten scoundrel gets the promotion and I'm stuck here? And I'm trying to live a faithful life. How come he gets a job in two weeks and I'm waiting for a job in three months? And I'm the one who's, who believes in Jesus. God, don't you owe me? You have to be extremely careful about it. This older son, his older son's life is never quite good enough. It's never what he hoped. It's always about somebody else passing him by. He had eyes to see, but he couldn't see. Elder brothers also serve in beautyless duty. He says, all these years, I've been slaving for you. 
And I'm surprised the father doesn't say, oh, is that what you call it? Is that what you call it? Interesting that the the younger brother who really blows it, when he comes to his senses, when he sees himself, he says, I've been a son, but maybe dad, after I've blown it, maybe, maybe he'll make me like a hired man. This elder brother takes pride in being a son, but he's been living like a slave. What a paradox. He's saying, I've been slaving for you, but boy, it's been a grind. You ever served that way? You ever served the Lord that way? Well, I'll do it. Nobody else is. It's got to be done. Or you, you, you do what you're supposed to do, but you have no joy in it. There's no sense of exhilaration in your life. Uh, I'll slave for you, but it's, it's going to be a grind, I know. Elder brothers obey. They obey well. Elder brothers pray. Elder brothers carry their Bibles to church. Elder brothers do a lot of great things, but there's no joy in it. It's like you look in college. Did you ever look at your grade point average and think, man, I got to pick that up a little bit? So you take some class, you have no care about it all, but you know it's an easy grade and it'll pump up your grade point average. That's sort of how we treat God. Maybe I'll do a little more service and that'll make up the difference for, you know, how I've hurt God or how I've sinned against him because I have these other areas of my life that aren't doing so well. I'll give a little more money in the offering plate. I'll do a few more things to make God be on my side. Be careful if after obeying, you say, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting my prayers answered like I want. I need to see some results. Do you have joy in your service to the Father? Do you find delight in doing what you do in his name? Do you love serving people in his name? See, if there's no joy there, you're just an elder brother doing it because you have to, not because of what's happened to you and your position as a child of God. Elder brothers also an inflated sense of goodness. This elder brother exaggerated his own goodness and exaggerated his brother's badness. One translation puts it this way, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed you. Oh, really? You never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Five times he uses a personal pronoun in that one statement, exposing it being all about himself. He says, now this, notice what he says, he doesn't say, while my brother, he says, while your son No brother of mine. While your son, that brat, is sleeping with prostitutes. Now, did you see Jesus say that in the story? I mean, suddenly, he's got it figured out exactly what sins the brother did. Maybe that one came to mind because that's what he would do if he was leaving home. Right? Who knows? While this son of yours is having a heyday, See, there's nobody good, the Bible says. There's none that are good. Only one. Only one, Jesus Christ. Some of you have been in construction. The strongest beam, of course, is the I-beam. And it's the strongest beam in our own lives we have to care, we have to be concerned about all the time, the I-beam. It's about me, my happiness, my God doing things my way, God answering my prayers in the way I'm asking him to answer them, and on and on. You know, this, this elder brother couldn't 
celebrate with his brother's repentance and his restoration because he was blinded by his own goodness. You see, there are two sons that are lost. One's lost because of their rebellion. One is lost because he's he, because of his own goodness. He thinks by being so good, all is well, when in fact, he deserves the father's inheritance. You ever feel like that with God? You ever pray that way? God, I think, I'm, I think it's time for you to pay off a little bit, pay up a little bit, you know? That's elder brother mentality. So we compare and we contrast our lives with with other people, we measure our own goodness, and we always measure ourselves a little better. We measure ourselves on the curve, right? And we measure others on a downward curve. That's what we do. Henry Nguyen was, a, was revolutionized by studying this text. He was a preacher and a very moral, religious person, proud of his own goodness. And out of this study of this story Jesus tells, he writes, looking into myself and then around me at the lives of other people, I wonder which does more damage, lust or resentment. There's so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There's so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There's so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. You see, see, I hope you're here. Are there rules for holy living? I said that a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely, I'll repeat it if you weren't here. There are rules for holy living. God has standards. But if that's all your relationship is based on, there will never be transformation of your life to be like Jesus. That's the problem. We reduce the transformation process to just rule-keeping and a checkoff list. And you can say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, check- I'm going to church. I hate my life. I hate where I am. I don't like my marriage. You know, I don't like my job. I should be making more money. I don't like those people. But boy, I'm in church. And you think that's yielded to the lordship of Jesus? There's some people who live that way. Shame. Shame on them. And we have to be done with that kind of living. That's elder brother living and thinking. And elder brothers have a faulty sense of grace. This elder brother felt insulted because he thought he deserved better than the son, or at least the same as this younger son. It happens to children and families, doesn't it? The wayward child can get a lot of attention. It comes back. The faithful one has always been there. What about me? This fattened calf, calf, he had a bad day, didn't he? But this elder brother thought he did too. There's a danger. You can start entering this realm of performance and you leave the realm of grace. Brothers, you know, I am saved today in exactly the same way you are saved. I am not saved because I'm a preacher, because I bury people and marry people, because I go to hospitals. That has nothing to do with my salvation. I do not have a hotline to God. 
I do not have perks that aren't available to you. I get to God the Father the same way you do by the cross of Jesus. You saying true about the cross or the sinful part? (laughs) Both, I'm sure. Yeah. There are more pouting prodigals that carry a Bible and attend church than should be. They're proud of their obedience. You remember Jesus, he told that story in Matthew 20 about that, about that master, remember that sent workers to the vineyard? He started looking for people to work for him. He got it at sunrise. You know, he, uh, he hired some workers that worked all day, and he, he went back at 9 o'clock, and he went back at noon to the city square, then he went to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, even at 5 o'clock. Some only worked for, the, for the, the owner for an hour, the owner of the vineyard for an hour. And when payday came, he gave the same to everybody. So the 5 o'clock he started with, but as, the, as he went on paying everybody, the people who worked from sunrise said, hey, 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 we should be getting more. We've been working all day. So verse 9 of chapter 20 says, The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, And you have made them equal to us who have, been, have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day? We don't like this. It's not the American way, is it? But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Would you like God the Father to be less generous than he is? What would that mean for our lives? Instead, we have this gracious God. He continues to pour out and pour out and pour it. And we, none of us are deserving. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. But that wrath has been diverted from, from us to Jesus. These hyper-religious Pharisees who are listening to this, this story could not grasp grace. They were blind to their own need. They didn't know what it was to be lost, so they weren't ready to be found. They didn't know what it was to be dead, and they didn't therefore know what anything being alive would mean. Well, here's God's message to pew Pharisees. Now, it's not for me to decide. The minute I decide, try to decide who here is Pharisee, I am one. So it's none of your business who God would call a pew Pharisee today. But it's your responsibility and mine to take inventory. I love it that the father came out and he says, son, the word there that he uses directly to the, to the elder brother is a different Greek word than the other word son in the story that Jesus tells. It's saying, in essence, dear son. He still has this longing heart for the father. He sees one son, one son geographically who is far off. He sees the elder son who is spiritually a long way off. And this is what he's saying. I treasure our relationship more than your work. That's what God wants. He says to him, look, you're always mine. You're always here. 
You want a, if you wanted a billy goat in a party, I'd have given you one. You didn't really ask for one. James says later, you don't have because you don't ask. You know, as, 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 as sons and daughters of God, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with him. And uh, that comes really to the next statement, which is what my, what's mine is yours. And I'm going to blend these both together. I treasure our relationship more than your work, and what's mine is yours. They all work together. You remember Mary, Mary and Martha, that scene in Jesus' life? And in that particular occasion, Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Martha's concerned with the kitchen work, and she's ticked off because Mary's not helping her. And Jesus commends Mary, says, look, Mary has found what's most important, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Now, there are times you have to be in the kitchen, right? But for that particular occasion, Mary had it right. And I've confessed to you many times, dear friends, that I have substituted my worship for God or working for God. But he wants a relationship with him. What's mine is yours. All I have is yours. We are joiners with Jesus. When the cross is all about... Jesus divert, God diverting off of us his wrath onto Jesus so that we could have all the benefits of being God's son just like Jesus. Do you know that? Do you understand that? See, that's, that's what this life, it's like you get this, you win a trip. You've never heard, let's pretend you've never heard of a cruise ship before. Cruise, what's that? Well, they're going to put you on this big boat and you're going to go to Europe. Wow, Cool. Is the boat going to hold me? Oh, yeah, it's going to hold 2,000 people. You're going to be 2,000 people on a boat? Wow, I've never seen anything like that. And so you're ignorant. You've been, in, you've been in, under a bush all your life. And so you get on this cruise ship, and uh, you get packed to go, and you think, man, okay, there's my clothes. I better pack mm, peanut butter and crackers and cheese sticks and fruit roll-ups and Cheez-Its and, and whatever. And you get halfway across the Atlantic, you've eaten it all. And you walk the deck and you see these places where people are going into buffets and all this and you're salivating and you're famished. And you finally say to the steward, you know, is there some leftover somewhere? I'm dying here. I didn't bring enough. And the steward says, what? The food comes with the trip. It's all yours. And we nickel and dime our relationship with God. There is so much available and his peace, and his joy, and his presence, and his exhilaration, and, and satisfaction. And we just get a little crumbs from him, and we think, okay, this is really nice and sweet. And all he has, he says to us, everything I have is yours. What a father. And he says, it's my party. So join me. See, this is what the, this is what the elder brother didn't get. Jesus says, you know, the, the Father says, I had, we had to celebrate. We must celebrate. It's an imperative. It's, it's here where the elder brother is confused. He thought this was the brother's party. No, it's the father's party. So that's why the shepherd celebrates at the lost sheep. And the woman calls her friends together. Celebrate. I lost my, I found my lost coin. The father says, I got to have everybody together. Celebrate with me. And when we watch a person be baptized into Jesus Christ, we are joining with the Father in heaven who's already celebrating the fact. That's the good news of walking with Jesus, celebrating, all about celebration. That's what worship should be, friends. That's why worship should be. When we come together, what are we doing? We are celebrating the fact that we are not where we should, where we should be. We should be lost. We should be condemned. We should be under judgment, and we're not 
because of the blood of Christ. Luke 15 is a celebration about lost things. It has more to do with Pharisees than anybody else. Because remember verses 1 and 2, we studied them. That's the true audience. The Pharisees are looking at Jesus and say, we don't like who you're eating with. We don't like who you're hanging around with. They're not our kind. They're not the church type. Who are you willing to see this week? And we see them through the eyes of a judge or the eyes of a doctor, a great physician. Pharisees are pouting. And Jesus says, come on, come on, guys. Join me in the celebration. What a story. Actually, there are three sons. There's the young son, there's the older son, and there's the son of God. We come to this Lord's table this morning to remember our Savior. And this third son, the son of God, he left his home too. He left his father, and he went to a distant place, planet Earth, not in disobedience, but in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. And he became poor, the poorest of poor. He became the famished one, the thirsty one. I thirst. He became the broken one, the ruined one, so that we could be the ones who are brought in to the party to celebrate. What, what a Savior we worship today. When you lift high the cross, it affects the wandering son. It reminds us of the intense love of the Father. Have you wandered this week? We're glad you're here. You may have sinned 15 hours ago Saturday night. But you're here today. Some people would say, you shouldn't be in church after that behavior. There's no better place for you to be than in church this morning and do better this week. This table is for elder brother types, people who will be willing to come to their senses and realize, you know, it's been too much about me. It's got to be about the cross. It's even for orphans that don't have a home to belong to to realize that this is why Jesus laid down his life, that we could be adopted as sons and daughters belonging to him. So let's be thankful in this time of remembrance today and be thankful together that one has thought of us, saw us while we were far way off and brought us home. Let's sing.